Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called on China-U.S. relations the most important bilateral relationship in the world when meeting with a visiting U.S. bipartisan delegation. China again urges the Philippines to stop its infringement of Chinese territorial waters after a Philippine naval vessel intruded on China's Huangyan Island region in the South China Sea. And China's manufacturing PMI bounces back to expansion territory in September as economy improves. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ke Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Our top stories, Chinese President Xi Jinping has called China-U.S. relations the most important bilateral relationship in the world. He says how Beijing and Washington get along will determine the future of humanity. The Chinese president made the remarks while meeting with a visiting U.S. bipartisan delegation led by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in Beijing. Gao Yiming has more. Xi Jinping says the common interests of China and the U.S. far outweigh their differences, and the two nations' respective success is an opportunity rather than a challenge to each other. He says given the highly integrated Chinese and U.S. economies and interests, both countries stand to benefit from each other's development. The Chinese president also says global challenges, including post-pandemic recovery, climate change, and other regional and international hotspots, require the cooperation and coordination between Beijing and Washington. He continues to call for the two countries to properly handle their relations, respect each other, coexist in peace, and pursue win-win cooperation. This is the first U.S. congressional visit to China since 2019. Xi Jinping says China welcomes more U.S. congressional members to come and gain a better understanding of China's past, present, and future. Senator Schumer and his colleagues say Washington does not see conflict with or decoupling from China, but hopes to strengthen bilateral trade and investment cooperation. They say China's development and prosperity is good for the American people, and a stable bilateral relationship helps contribute to the world peace. And development. That's Gaoying Ming reporting. So to talk more on this meeting and China-U.S. relations, joining us on the line is Dr. Zhao Hai, director of international political studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Zhao. Thank you for having me. First of all, how do you assess President Xi Jinping's statement that competition and confrontation between China and the U.S. are not consistent with the current global trend? What implications does this statement have for the current China-U.S. relations? I think、uh, President Xi clearly pointed out that、uh, the there's a mega trend in the world and there's a micro trend. Uh, also,、uh, between some countries, the micro trend, of course,、uh, for China's strong belief that peace and development is still very much at the center of global development. The majority of the world countries are still need a peaceful development environment and also wanted to develop their own countries, have more trade, and have more cooperation on urgent needs for their own、uh, domestic people to live up、uh, to lift their livelihood. Uh, on the other hand, there are some countries wanted to、uh, fight for their own、uh, narrow national interest and try to compete and play a zero-sum game,、uh, such as the, the United States. And some people in the U.S. wanted to reverse back to the Cold War years and benefiting themselves, trying to continue to dominate the world stage and dictate、uh, the world development. And that's what presidency is referring to: that the、uh, China-U.S. relations should not be defined. By zero-sum game, and instead should coexist peacefully in trying to find common ground and cooperate with each other. Doctor Zhao, in that sense, Xi Jinping said the common interests of China and the United States far outweigh their differences. So, in your opinion, what are the key areas of common interest between the two countries today, and how can they be leveraged for mutual benefit? I think clearly for the last、uh, at least four decades. Um, China-U.S. trade is the most important part. It's the ballast 
uh, commonly understood as uh, the uh, for the bilateral relationship. So throughout the years, the growth of trade and uh, uh, not only goods but services benefit both countries tremendously. The United States leading the developed world uh, in terms of its development, um, its uh, speed of growth, and China also gained tremendously by growing its economy and double its size in the last 20 years. So I think it's uh, very important both countries maintain such trade uh, relationship and have more technological cooperation to uh, facilitate that trade relations. And because of some some uh, domestic problem in the United States, which related to their own tax and redistribution, that is not evenly, uh, the, the gain of globalization is not evenly distributed among their own people. Now they have a political backlash and trying to change the status between particularly related to trade and technology between the two countries. Mm. And that is obviously detrimental to the bilateral relationship. And that's where we can, we should work together on. The Chinese president said as two major countries, China and the United States, should demonstrate the broad-mindedness, vision and readiness to rise to the occasion expected by the international community. So how do you interpret his statement here? Specifically, what expectations might China and the world community have for the United States based on these remarks? Uh, like uh, what you previously said, uh, the presidency has already said in his speech uh, to the, the U.S. Uh, delegation that there are many areas that the world is looking at China and U.S. to work together, and particularly on the issue like climate change and post-COVID economic recovery. Mm-hmm. On climate change, it's very obvious that without the two uh, world largest emitters and also world two largest technology technology leaders to work together on solving this problem, there won't be a solution uh, to this problem. And the problem is urgent. Uh, Just look at this year's um, temperature, average temperature that is breaking records. So that uh, speaks to the world uh, and also for both two big countries that they need to uh, have the urgency to work together and continue to push uh, the UN uh, to adopt more uh, advanced or uh, more aggressive targets to reduce emission so that the world can keep uh, keep uh, uh, reducing emission and save the you know p- particularly working on climate change also on post covid economic recovery that is also the key because right now the world uh, is slowing down the total growth is slowing down and without the two countries and other countries coordinating through uh, particularly like g20 platform uh, the, the without this uh, microeconomic coordination, each country will only serve their own own interest and the world will not pick up in terms of uh, development, uh, in terms of growth speed. Dr. Zhao, in recent times, we have observed frequent visits to China by high-ranking U.S. officials and entrepreneurs. What has brought the recent U.S. legislative delegation to China, especially considering it marked the first U.S. congressional visit to China in four years? I think uh, the uh, senator, uh, those senators representing U.S. Congress um, and this uh, delegation has a special mission, which is to resume the disrupted uh, connection between the two parliaments. Uh, like you said, uh, there are high-level officials coming to visit China, including uh, the State Department, uh, the Treasury, uh, the Commerce Department, also special envoy on climate change. However, those are government officials. And uh, as we know, that the U.S. Congress right now is having a very aggressive anti-China or tough-on-China agenda. Mm-hmm. And there are many threatening bills going through Congress. So that is uh, due to the, the uh, misinterpretation of China's strategic intentions, as well as under some advocates of uh, really uh, uh, a very anti-China uh, congressman that is uh, you know, pushing the bills through Congress. So this delegation should have uh, bring back some uh, uh, accurate understanding of China, China's economy, China's politics, so that they can bridge the two countries and have more communications with better understanding. Hopefully, they can tune down this anti-China rhetoric in the U.S. Congress.
But Dr. Zhao Schumer has constantly advocated for a tough stance on China, emphasizing competition and imposing restrictions on trade and technology against China. And last year, a U.S. National Security Strategy report identified China as the country with both the will and the intention to pose the greatest threat to the international standing of the United States. So, with the recent trips, will the idea that China is America's strategic rivalry? Change.、Uh, I don't think one trip will change all that. Even with those、uh, trips from、uh, each U.S. department, is going to completely change the U.S. strategic direction.、Uh, however,、uh, remember, I think communications would help to,、uh, you know, for both sides to、uh, increase trust and have a, uh, a correct understanding of each other's position, which will help to solve out,、uh, some of the problems caused by mistrust. And caused by misrepresentation of each other's positions, and one of the things is that uh, uh, previously, as you stated,、uh, Senator Schumer has been uh, taken up some、uh, very tough positions on China. But at this point, also that he's a, a very friendly,、uh, he's a friend of President、uh, Biden, and、uh, he's、uh, right now the Democrats is in the White House, and they need to coordinate their steps to、uh, have a. Unified policy towards China. So right now, the White House is pursuing a strategy or a policy、uh, to stabilize relations with China and trying to、uh, reduce tensions between the two sides. And I think、uh, Senator Schumer is helping the White House and trying to deliver the same message from、uh, the congressional side to say that they want to they wanted to reduce tensions and have more. Uh, stability uh, between the two sides, and considering the next year is going to be a election year, big year、uh, for the United States, and there will be more chaos, more polarization, more political posturing. So I think at this point, both countries really needed two leaders to meet face to face, and also to have more communications to reduce potential、uh, disruptions of the relationship. As we talked about earlier, both sides expressed willingness to enhance dialogue and cooperation on issues such as climate change, regional conflicts, etc. How do you view their cooperation on these areas today? Can they serve as a new foundation to stabilize China-U.S. relations? Well, I think it depends because at this point, China has showed willingness to cooperate with the United States on various issues. But the U.S. has made the cooperation very difficult because、mm-hmm. the U.S. side continued to put sanctions, continued to、um, build barriers between the two sides, and、uh, the Trump era policies has never been reversed or reduced. So at this point, I think the U.S. needs to do more to win、uh, understanding and trust from the Chinese side so that they can move forward. One of the key uh, uh, example in case the case. Is that、uh, case in sight? Is that、uh, the fentanyl problem、uh, in the U.S. is national emergency, and the U.S. wants to enlist China's help. However, at the same time, the U.S. is sanctioning、uh, Chinese relevant departments.、Mm-hmm. So I think the U.S. needs again lift, lift the the uh, sanctions. Uh, you know, in the very beginning, is is wrongful sanction, so that they can move on with more cooperation and with trust that the cooperation can be realized. Thanks, Dr. Zhao, for your time and insightful. Analysis. That's Dr. Zhang Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategies, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. This is Road Today. We'll be back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. You've been listening to Road Today. China has published a white paper on the achievements of the Belt and Road Initiative over the past ten years. One major purpose of the paper is to give the international community a better understanding of the value of the BRI. Zhang Chunying has details. The report says that the initiative is paving the way towards shared development and prosperity, 
as it advocates women cooperation and encourages economic integration, uh, interconnected development, and the sharing of achievements. Uh, one of the biggest highlights is the initiative's contribution to promoting all-round connectivity, including policy coordination, uh, infrastructure connectivity, unimpeded trade, financial integration, and closer people-to-people -people ties. And specifically, it says that under the BRI framework, Chinese and foreign partners have launched uh, 20 plus multilateral dialogue and cooperation mechanisms in professional domains such as railways, uh, ports, energy, finance, and so on. And basic connectivity over land, maritime, air, and cyberspace is in place with six corridors, six routes, and multiple countries and ports. And thanks to the increase in connectivity, uh, trade and investment has also been expanding steadily. From 2013 to 2022, the cumulative uh, value of imports and exports between China and BRI partner countries reached over 19 trillion U.S. dollars. And that is an annual growth rate of over 6.4%. Besides, the BRI participating countries have also jointly promoted cooperation on industrial capacity, uh, expanded cooperation in traditional industries, including steel, uh, non-ferrous uh, metals, building materials, automobiles, and so on. And have also explored cooperation in some emerging industries, such as um, digital economy, new energy vehicles, artificial intelligence, 5G network, and so on. That was Zhengqing reporting. To delve into the white paper, let's have Einar Tengen, senior fellow at Taihe Institute. Great to have you on our show, Einar. Always good to be here. Thank you. Einar, the BRI draws inspiration from the Asian Silk Roads, which facilitated the extensive cultural exchanges over two millennia. Uh, how do you think the historical significance of the Asian Silk Roads has influenced the vision of the BRI in promoting global cooperation? Well, I mean, today more than ever, I mean, the global supply chain literally touches every single person in this world. And as a result, you know, it's not like the old days where you could just pay attention to your neighbors and maybe a few strong trade uh, partners. Uh, you have to know everybody, and everybody has to know you. And, and that means people-to-people -people contact. It means education. It means traveling there. It means more than just knowing the language. It also means that you need to know everything about that country from its political and legal systems down to its culture and literature. Uh, it's the only way in which you can have a world which has many differences but can maintain harmony because, in essence, we want the same thing, uh, prosperity, security, mm -hmm. and the ability to determine our own futures. We know the BRL has evolved from a vision into concrete projects and has been welcomed as a cooperation platform. Can you elaborate on some specific examples of projects or collaborations under the BRI framework that have made a tangible positive impact on the participating countries? Well, you know, this, this is the thing about the BRI and, and why it is sometimes opened up to uh, criticism uh, by people outside it. Uh, the BRI is an engine. Uh, its component pieces are important, yes, to each country, but it really only takes on significance as all the pieces fit together. It's like building a car engine. Uh, you, you give me one part of a car engine, no, it's not going to, to work. But once you get that engine uh, going and the cylinder's firing and you, know, you have fuel for it, boy, it can do a lot of work. So right now, uh, you know, you're going to be talking about green uh, projects that are out there. Uh, there's a, just recently 123 megawatt solar farm in South Africa, a um, 50 megawatt wind farm in Nambia, 600 megawatt uh, solar farm in Saudi Arabia. And that's above all the ports and roads, hospitals, schools, etc. because it's not just physical uh, infrastructure. Uh, the next step, I really do believe, is going to be uh, a lot about making investments in the country. Having a large, young population, as they do in Africa and India, is fine. But unless those people are prepared and able to work and join this fast-moving uh, digital uh, information society, uh, it will not uh, work out well. 
NRSU suggested the BRI is an engine to boost regional and global development, but is also facing various global challenges such as regional conflicts, terrorism, climate change, and cyber attacks. How does the BRI address these challenges and contribute to the establishment of a more just and equitable global governance system? Well, if you, if you go back to the very beginning, the, uh, when she was championing this, I mean, it, it, there, there was mention of the Belt and Road Initiative going back before then, but it was really something that she saw as the way to have a multipolar world. Uh, you cannot have a situation where uh, countries do not have enough to eat, uh, where they're not secure, um, where you know, it, it, there's no hope. Uh, there has to be a way if we're going to have a world which is, in fact, peaceful. So um, so many of the things that have come out of the Belt and Road Initiative, the Security Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Civilization Initiative, uh, you know, this, these ideas that all wrap themselves up into this, you know, this concept that we live in, a, in essence, a rowboat, and we start need to start paddling it the same way. We have too many challenges out there beyond the ones we've created ourselves um, in terms of uh, you know, debts and the climate change, etc. Uh, it really is going to take a tremendous amount of effort. Right now, uh, you have some parties who uh, not only aren't willing to row in the same direction, they're actually rowing against uh, progress. As you said, today we have too many challenges. When facing climate crisis, we place a strong emphasis on green and sustainable development. Uh, so does the BRI. What has been achieved so far in this realm under the BRI framework? What impact do these projects aim to achieve in terms of environmental conservation and carbon neutrality goals? Well, uh, there are internal things that China is doing in terms of carbon neutrality and things like that. But uh, what I think the world is waiting for um, China, which has the most renewable uh, energy um, re- resources in terms of manufacture, the solar panels and uh, the wind turbines, etc., uh, to really kind of uh, start exporting those. And uh, the three um, projects that I just mentioned are an example of what is going forward. But, you know, coal is a, is a huge issue. China's a big user. They have said that the BRI will not support a new coal plants. Um, uh, there are some criticisms that in China that, oh, China has had new coal plants. But what we fail to understand is that China gets rid of, uh, you know, uh, 40, 50, 60 really, really bad coal plants. And as a stopgap measure, they build an efficient, cleaner coal-burning facility but that is, as I said, a stopgap measure until they can bring in the renewables uh, or uh, hopefully uh, nuclear and uh, other uh, new technologies that could be, uh, you know, bring in hydrogen, etc. There is an, there is another highlight in the document that many are not familiar with is the clean governance. Uh, this is considered fundamental for the BRI's sustained development. Can you provide details on the anti-corruption measures implemented within the BRI framework? Specifically, what role do Chinese enterprises play in upholding clean governance standards in their overseas operations? Well, this, this had been a problem in the past, especially when you had government-to-government loans, e.g. the Chinese government would enter into a contract with another government, say, we'll give you X amount of money. Uh, there would be a, generally some sort of list of projects that they were trying to do. But in the procurement uh, and bidding process, um, things didn't always go the way they should. Um, and as a result, there was a lot of leakage. And then when the governments changed, especially in uh, areas where they had uh, democracies, uh, the new government automatically accused the old government of corruption and uh, you know, malfeasance, etc. So that has changed. China now has a system where it's all about the feasibility of the project. So they go in, they study it, they make sure that it's feasible. Then uh, they put the financing together. Um, and it's not just uh, China's doing this. I think people would be very surprised that the IMF, and the World Bank, and the ADB, and the African Development Bank, these are all you know, institutions which are participating. They're spreading uh, the 
uh, you know, the, the risk, basically, creating pooled risk, also increasing the amount of money that's available. So this idea that somehow China is off by itself and, you know, just doing things that no one understands is, is nonsense. China has uh, adapted to the reality. Thanks, Einer. That's Einer Tengen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. This is World Today. We'll be back. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Ellard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back to World Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. China again urges the Philippines to immediately stop its infringement of Chinese territorial waters. It came after the China Coast Guard drove away a Philippine naval vessel intruding in the waters near China's Huangyan Island in the South China Sea on Tuesday. China says professional and legitimate measures were taken after the Philippine vessel ignored repeated warnings. The Philippines has made a series of such moves in recent months, which Beijing says violated Chinese territorial sovereignty, defined international law, and disrupt regional peace and stability. So for more on this, let's bring in Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rong. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Recently, we have observed frequent provocations from the Philippines regarding Huangyan Island and the Renai Jiao. How do you perceive these actions and what do you believe is motivating them behind these provocations? Yeah, I just too. I think we have noticed that in the past months, we have frequent sort of publication by the Philippine side in uh, not only violating Chinese sovereignty, territorial integrity, maritime rights, but also may because of these publications has set back the stable relations between China and the Philippines a lot and causing. A uh, lot of questions and the negative impacts on the regional peace and the stability. There are quite a lot of, I think, uh, factors leading to that. Uh, the primary factor, as far as I can see, is that the, uh, the new government, the government by Bongbong Marcos, as they said, has uh, made a shift of its foreign policy towards China mm-hmm. and by, I think, willingly play a role like a proxy and also at the chest for United States Indo-Pacific strategies, which aimed at suppressing, containing um, China, which I, I think in the end, this is not a wise way. And more importantly, I think the uh, uh, Philippines uh, move or Philippines shift change of its policy uh, with the United States and China, uh, those make sharp contrast with the other regional countries, ASEAN countries. Uh, which I think they have strived to strike a balance, not to play a role of proxy. And more importantly, I think, uh, uh, to make sure that they were not an overall relationship with China and uh, I think regional peace and stability would not mind. Dr. Rong, including driving away a Philippine naval vessel, how do you assess China's response recently to the Philippines' actions over the Huangyan Island? I think what China has done, China's response, has been very professional and also, I think, restrained and reasonable. And I think uh, according to the China's uh, domestic law and the international law, uh, this is something I think uh, very much important, uh, without which I would argue that we might see more sort of uh, a rising tension or even escalation. I think this is the, the, the really the point uh, I would then make, and more importantly, I think, recognized by international community. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is the only hope that the Philippines would understand the, uh, the, the, the China's uh, sort of responses in a way that it is out of uh, uh, the, the real concern of peace and stability uh, of the region. 
and more and more importantly, out of the uh, fact that China uh, would uh, resolve or manage this issue, these issues uh, in light with the, the the international law, including Ankara's. And this is, in other words, the Philippine side should be really careful, not misunderstanding or misinterpreting China's restraints and reasonable in terms uh, on this question. Regarding the Renai Jiao, the Philippines argues that uh, China's claim of unquestionable sovereignty over the area is contentious. How do you view such accusation from the Philippines? What historical and legal basis does China have for its sovereignty over the area? I think uh, the Philippines' uh, accusation uh, is really, I think, uh, unreasonable and totally wrong. As we know, the Renai Jiao and the other uh, island, I mean, Nansha Island, mm -hmm. has uh, been China's uh, territory uh, ever since ancient times. And whatever the case, in terms of geography, economic, political, and historical ground, uh, the Renai Jiao has always been an unalienable part, important part of China. This is not only, I think, uh, commonly recognized by international community, but also very much, I think, conform to the uh, uh, the uh, UN ANCLA. And the argument of our Philippines uh, that uh, the so-called uh, the, uh, the South China Sea arbitration mm -hmm. uh, uh, is uh, again illegal because. According to the uh, uh, the relevant uh, legal legal issues, first and foremost, uh, uh, the uh, territorial issue does not uh, uh, belong to the uh, sort of uh, uh, category or the not by the UN ANCLA. And more importantly, I think China, as a member of ANCLA, has exercised its right right by excluding any sort of uh, uh, treat any way, uh, anything like uh, international jurisdiction or international uh, uh, legal activities. And the so-called South China Sea arbitration and the award itself uh, goes against uh, the, uh, the very important principle of state consent. In, in other words, because of these reasons, uh, China uh, the, uh, the, 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 the China's argument is legal. The, uh, uh, the Philippines' argument uh, based on the so-called award of that arbitration court, uh, tribunal is unreasonable. It does not hold any water at all. Dr. Rong, very briefly, in your opinion, what could be the potential consequences for the region if these issues are not resolved peacefully and diplomatically? How would it hinder the common interest of the countries in the region? This is a very good question because in the South China Sea, uh, there are the, the disputes or, uh, on the territorial things and also maritime uh, rights that do not uh, so that were just limited uh, between China and uh, uh, the Philippines. There are several uh, countries uh, among themselves, and certainly up to some extent with China, they all have disputes. And the most important thing, so, uh, as we have seen in the past, we all agree that these, these disputes should be solved in a peaceful way and through negotiation. And because of that, uh, China and ASEAN have worked together to reach uh, a very important document called the Declaration on the on the conduct of, on the South China Sea, and also working very closely with the ASEAN for the so for the COC, the Code of Conduct in South China Sea, and this is very much important, not only between China and the, ASEAN the whole, but also I think bilaterally China and the Philippines, the previous government, uh, they we had have had bilateral agreements on how to manage uh, the, the dispute, how to ensure that the disputes were solved, were resolved in a peaceful way, and uh, I mean uh, frequently uh, provocating China on these issues 
uh, like what the current government does, will only bring more uh, uh, problems, more disputes, and in the end, they will undermine the peace and stability in the region. I think this is why China has very much made, made a point that the only way uh, for the sake uh, of the uh, peace, stability, and the prosperity of the region, the issues have to be resolved. This is a common responsibility and indeed an imperative of China and ASEAN together, working together to ensure South China Sea, that the region will become peaceful uh, and prosperous and a stable region. Okay, thanks, Dr. Rong, for your insightful opinion. That's Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. The Purchasing Managers Index for China's manufacturing sector came in at 50.2 in September, bouncing back into expansionary territory. A rating above 50 indicates expansion, while a rating below 50 reflects contraction. This is the first time since April that the PMI for China's manufacturing sector has surged above 50, following four consecutive months of growth. Official data also shows that non-manufacturing PMI came in at 51.7 in September. Meanwhile, retail and logistics sectors maintained a strong momentum in September as supportive policies took effect. So for more on the latest economic data in September, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, China's manufacturing PMI came in at 50.2 in September, and this is bouncing back to the expansionary territory. So, how do you explain the main reason or factors behind this, and how do you see the trend for the rest of the year? We know that China is a very important manufacturing country, so the manufacturing PMI is a really important indicator that we can see the trend of the development of the economy. You know, after three years of pandemic, the economy has been suppressed a lot. So many companies shrink their stock to prepare for the shrink of the market. Well, in the coming years or, you know, even this year, we see that the months are ahead, are having a better prospect. So the companies, especially the factories, the manufacturers, they are trying to prepare more to to meet the demand in the next few months. So the 50 points is a really important one that we see that the confidence of the manufacturers are increasing and they are really want to be involved in a better performance in the competition of the market. Mm-hmm. So are we seeing China is moving up the uh, manufacturing ladder into a more technologically intensive area? Actually, we can see the rapid development in the uh, sectors like uh, solar panel, EV and batteries and robots, right? Yes. So they are kind of, you know, a combination of the demand and the supply. We know that from the demand side that the companies are trying to have more profits. So they are trying to employ a better technology to reduce the cost that they have to pay for the laborers and for other things. So they are using robots. And for the demand, many companies really see the potentials. So they are able to produce the better equipment to meet their demand. Mm -hmm. I think it's a kind of what we call it's a new momentum for the development of the economy and the manufacturing factories. And also the, you know, the consumers are trying to uh, work together to address this new demand. And official data also shows that non-manufacturing PMI came in at 51.7%. So what does this figure tell us? Actually, we know that non-manufacturing PMI is a kind of also survey-based data. The, uh, the Statistics Bureau are using that data to try to evaluate the performance and the willingness of the service sectors. So if this, uh, if, uh, this data is going up, I think that there are more confidence on, on that. And when we are compared with the manufacturing PMI and the non-manufacturing PMI, we can find that non-manufacturing is especially more fluctuated because they are seeing the future better. So they are trying to re, uh, trying to act better or quicker mm-hmm. to address this uh, new trend. And China's foreign exchange reserves fell 45 billion US dollars in September. So what factors play a significant role in this change? 
for the Federal Reserve, it's a combination of different factors from the trade, from the investment. Actually, for this month's data, it's a very small amount compared with what we have for the more than 3.1 trillion US dollar as a total. So it's a very small uh, proportion. But if you are looking at the fluctuation reason, we may find that there are many reasons, including the policies of the United States and also, you know, the, the, the index of US dollars, which has uh, making the assets of other uh, kind of things to be uh, lowered. So it's a combination of different issues. And, and I don't think it's a really big problem compared with the stubbornness of uh, the Federal Reserve of us. And now look at the bigger picture in China's overall economic data and performance. So Dr. Zhou, what do they tell us about the prospects of China's economic recovery, the investment and also the real estate market? Well, uh, you know, for the uh, just uh, past uh, uh, the National Day's holidays, I went around China and uh, we see that uh, there are so many improvements about the tourism. The people are becoming more confident and they are really willing to consume more based on their, you know, the expectation about the future. So the tourism is one of the the very important phenomena that we can find that for many areas, they want to attract the tourism from not only China, but also other countries. Well, if you are looking at the real economy, we can find that as the PMI indicates that the, the, the people's confidence and expectations are getting stronger. So they are able to provide better and more products to meet the demand of the, you know, the market, not only in China, but also in other countries. Well, the third is that we know that investment is becoming, uh, I mean, uh, the rebounds uh, very quickly. So we are looking at that data. I, I would see that uh, all this uh, combination of the different activities ha- has given us a very clear signal that China's economy is recovering. And it is not only about the numbers, in my understanding, it's uh, about the quality. So we want to have a more sustainable recovery based on the green technology, based on the digital economy, based on something that we have promised to the world that we have to try to cooperate with other countries. So in this regard, I would say that the rest of this year, there will be a better performance that we can expect. Mm-hmm. And Goldman Sachs says uh, China's stock market performance will improve towards the end of this year. So how do you see it and what's the foundation of it? Yes, for the uh, stock market, it's a real important place for the companies to, to have more capital from the, uh, the private sectors, from the investors. So uh, if the economy uh, is getting better, more companies will try to expand their business. So uh, I think that has a very uh, close relationship with the development of the economy. If we can uh, look at uh, the, you know, the change of the uh, register uh, mechanism of China's uh, Shanghai uh, uh, stock exchange, we can find that there are more freedom for the companies who want to be listed in the stock market. So they have more choices to be chosen uh, that stock market to get more money. Well, it, it is also from another side, we know that if there are more companies listed in the stock markets, it will be much easier for the public to know what they are doing because they have the obligations to publish their information to disclose their uh, some kind of actions. So uh, it's a kind of very good uh, factor to improve their uh, their governance, I mean, for the company level. Mm. I would say that stock market in China is still very promising because we are not in a a very uh, lot of forms. And uh, I think that there will be more investors who want to to put their money in the stock market to support the development of the companies. Mm. And how do you view the outlook of the uh, China's property market? Yeah, China's property market is a very big one. And uh, I would say that there are so many policies want to improve the people's expectation of the market. Well, I, I still believe that the main idea is not trying to make it uh, as weak as in Japan, but trying to make it more sustainable. So a lot of things could be done, not only to improve the quality, uh, the amount or volume that can be supplied to the market by trying to make it greener, more environment friendly. 
and these policies can combine to uh, to impact the development of real estate. Mm. And in the past few months, the government has introduced a series of measures to bolster the economy. This policy supports covered taxation, the housing market, business environment, and foreign capital. So how could they help support the economic activities and recovery? I think that most of the policies are not just coming from the air. They are based on the investigations. So the the government is trying to know what the enterprises, the business really want to have, and then trying to facilitate the the business and trying to reduce the cost of doing business. Well, that is also some of the idea that Chinese government is trying to attract the foreign investors, which is a very important part of Chinese economy. So with the combination of the different policies, I think China is uh, trying to give the, the world a very clear signal that we want to open and wider and wider and be more transparent according to the world leading uh, the, the rules on the international trade or investment. And that is very important for the investors to make a longer term decisions. That was Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Iran and Sudan have decided to restore their diplomatic relations after a seven-year strain. The Sudanese foreign ministry confirmed the breakthrough, citing extensive high-level communications that took place between the two nations. The decision followed the recent reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and Iran in March, facilitated by China, raising expectations that Tehran and other Arab countries could fully re-establish diplomatic relations. Sudan cut diplomatic ties with Iran in 2016, a fallout from the storming of the Saudi Arabian embassy in Tehran. So for more on the new development, joining us on the line is Sultan Hali, a retired Air Force officer and also in Pakistan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Mr. Holly, first of all, could you please back us up? How did the previous incident involving the storming of the Saudi Arabian embassy in Tehran back in 2016 impact Sudan's decision to cut diplomatic ties with Iran? Okay, you see, at that time in 2016, uh, Sudan and Saudi Arabia had come very close to each other after a tumultuous relationship, which was more like a roller coaster up and down. But uh, in 2016, or rather prior to 2016, with the Yemen war coming in, Sudan had sent its troops to fight alongside uh, the Saudis in uh, Yemen, and they were very close. But unfortunately, there was an incident in which uh, the, uh, the uh, you see, uh, Saudi Arabian, uh, they uh, executed a uh, Iranian cleric along with 46 others. And uh, this uh, caused the Iranians a lot of anger. And they stormed the, as you mentioned, the Saudi Arabian embassy in 2016. Mm -hmm. And as a show of solidarity with Saudi Arabia, Sudan had decided to cut its diplomatic ties with Iran. Then what were the key factors that led to the decision of resuming diplomatic ties between the two countries after a seven-year strain? Well, it's very important to look at uh, the world today. Mm -hmm. uh, you see, because uh, there are a lot of conflicts which are going on all around, and Sudan itself is embroiled in a kind of a civil war because they had uh, they've had a series of uh, uh, coups and uh, counter coups and coup d'etats, but uh, currently they are having a very severe strain. And there was a possibility of uh, Sudan actually collapsing. But you see, perhaps the redeeming factor here is the role of China, which brought uh, the erstwhile hostile nations of Iran and Saudi Arabia together in a rapprochement. And this opened the doors for other countries also to look inwards and also look at their neighbors and try and establish better relations. So the key factor probably could be the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia and uh, Sudan deciding to improve its relations uh, with Iran after a seven-year strain. Then what do you make of the timing of the announcement? Do you think the ongoing conflict between Palestine and Israel has any influence on the timing of this decision to restore diplomatic relations between Iran and Sudan? Well, actually, it's very interesting, you know, because uh, I don't think uh, the immediate timing 
uh, has anything to do with uh, what is going on in Palestine or between Israel and uh, uh, what is doing in Gaza. Because uh, the uh, according to the information which is available now openly, the Iran and uh, Sudan, they had made uh, overtures for peace starting from July of this year. So I don't think at that time anything which was going on in Palestine had anything to do with it. But the current timing is very interesting because you should also know that uh, Sudan and Israel, they have diplomatic relations. Whereas Iran, of course, is a, a son, uh, what you call, opponent of uh, Israel. And whatever has happened in, uh, you see, uh, Palestine right now, or what is happening, it, in fact, it's continuing. Uh, I don't think it had anything to do with this announcement. Um, the American media has reported that Iran may have played a role in planning the surprise attack by Hamas, but the Iranian mission to the UN has denied the allegation. How do you look at such allegations from the United States? Interestingly, you see, uh, Hamas as well as uh, Iran, they have had very close relations, although they've had their uh, periods of conflict also. Uh, the U United States, as well as uh, Israel, they blame Iran for supporting the Hamas and not only supporting them, you see, uh, diplomatically, but uh, by providing them arms and by providing them funds. As far as the American media and even the American government is concerned, it is a, you see, long time, uh, for a very long time, Israel has had an influence. The Jewish uh, community, it has inroads into the American media. It also has a lot of influence on uh, the State Department of the United States. So whatever uh, the uh, statement which comes out from the American media has a sparkle of uh, Israeli effect. Now, having said that, uh, Iran's support for the Hamas, as you rightly mentioned, uh, it has denied the allegations in the UN and only two hours before. Uh, Khamenei also declared that uh, Iran did not do this. But in the same breath, he also said that we would like to kiss the hands of those who planned it. But there is another aspect to it, that this planned attack was very brilliantly executed. So some people think that probably Hamas is uh, incapable of uh, planning and executing this kind of attack. So it may have had external help and some fingers point towards Iran. Uh, Mr. Hawley, briefly, what implications does the resumption of relations between Sudan and Iran have for the geopolitical dynamics in the Middle East? Yeah, that's a very important question. And in fact, the world will be watching because a lot of things were happening, which will now will be put on hold. For example, for starters, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, they were getting very much closer and there was a, a expectation that probably something um, good will come out by when I say good I mean between as far as the relationship is concerned but that is being put on hold because Saudi Arabia has issued a statement that it is not happy with what is going on in Palestinian in Palestine and most of the Arabs they support the Palestinians and they are condemning Israel. Thanks, Sadan Holly, a retired Air Force officer and author in Pakistan. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening.